Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Erica. I'm Sarah. And I'm Steve. So we are in the middle of a part two of a series. The first part was several months ago where we talked about uh, justice in the Bible. And then we had a short break where we did another series. And now we're back talking about justice. But this time we're talking about the practical applications of how we as Christians can practice justice in the world. So what kind of justice are we talking about today, Steve? Well, today we are going to explore what criminal justice means and or how we practice criminal justice in light of all the things we've talked about in the Bible. Um, and and to, to me, maybe, maybe we should just say out loud for everybody, uh, this seems like this is a more complicated conversation than earlier in uh, the spring when we were just talking about, well, what does the Bible say about this topic or that topic? Because we're all trained to do things like lead a Bible study. We're all trained to like remember things about this biblical book. The difficult thing is the leap from what does this biblical book say 3,000 years ago to what would that mean for us living in a complicated world today? So we are well aware there be dragons here, and we are, we are now going to jump into this realm where there are dragons as well, right? Right, and we're also not trained uh, in criminology. Right, right, right. And I am going to go out on a limb and say... I don't believe any of the three of us have uh, been incarcerated in a prison before. Nope. Nope. This would be an awkward time to have found that out. (laughs) Okay. So, so maybe we should also say um, the, the, the difficulty about talking about criminal justice, maybe that's different from, Areas we've talked about before, economic justice, or even creation uh, and environmental justice, is we all live on the planet. We all live in a world where we participate in some way with the economy, but none of the three of us ordinary people have the uh, power directly to be making laws or setting statutes, and none of us are judges who are adjudicating crimes. So this is a little bit outside of our day-to-day experience too. Um, and the the way we enter into this conversation is a little bit different than too. Whereas like when we talked about um, forgiveness of debt, I can put myself in the place of, yeah, I, I think it would be great if we could forgive debts in this way or that way. Or um, when we talked about taking care of creation, yeah, I, I, I can immediately get that. It's, it's maybe harder for uh, folks who have not had experience in the criminal justice system as uh, as perpetrators, as incarcerated people, or even for that matter, as victims, there's not as many people in a, in a crowd who are victims of crime necessarily. Um, how how do we how do we even start this conversation? Uh, I think we should start by reminding ourselves what Jesus said about how we as Christians should care for those who are imprisoned. Like, I think let's start there. Let's remind okay. ourselves what Jesus says, and then um, start theorizing how we as Christians in 21st century America can then treat the imprisoned. Sounds good. So, uh, when so we were remind talking us. About, when, 
<laughs> so when we were uh, talking right before we started recording this episode, uh, we mentioned the couple, you know, when we were like, oh, yeah, what does Jesus say? Uh, one of the ones that uh, stuck out to me was that um, it was Matthew 25, which is part of Sermon on the Mount, I believe. Yeah, that's, right? that's toward the end where Jesus is doing the sheep and the goats thing. Yeah. Sorry. I'm going to look it up on my phone Bible, which always so takes way longer you, than I think. So you're, you're pointing us to that, that passage at the end of Matthew 25, where uh, Jesus describes like the sort of great scene of judgment and says to the righteous, uh, blessed are you because you, and then you've got the list of what he says. Yeah, it's um like, uh, you know, uh, for you, uh, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. And, um, you know, the righteous then answered, you know, Lord, when was it that we saw you like this or like that? And when, when was it that we did all of these things? And, um, Jesus says, uh, truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of those and who are members of my family, you did it to me. Um, so it's a big, it is a big, long list of people who are in different circumstances, you know, whether they're sick or they're a stranger or in prison. And the way that Jesus kind of, you know, expects us as Christians to treat those people, you know, oh, if you see somebody who's hungry, you feed them. If you give, if you see somebody who's thirsty, you make sure they have water. Um, if you see a stranger, you welcome them. If you see, some, if you, you know, have those who are imprisoned among you, you visit them. And historical context, uh, at this time, many prisons in the first century, and even Earlier and later than this, they didn't like the state didn't provide for them. If you were imprisoned, your family was still expected to come in and like bring you food, make sure that you had food and clothing and etc. Um, so if you were imprisoned and you didn't have anybody to come bring you food, you were in trouble because they might like the guard might feel sorry for you every once in a while and throw you a crust of bread. But that probably wasn't going to be enough to sustain you. So you were kind of dependent on the charity of others, whether it was family members or just a good Christian person who was walking through and going, oh, here's some food. So the, I think those are a couple so of really important. So that's not quite the same as like, wow. Yeah, th those those uh, differences are important to, to mention. I, I think that that helpfully uh, fleshes out sort of the, the the picture that we are used to maybe picturing. Um, oh, prisoners, they have uh, their, their meals are provided institutionally and their pillows and blankets or things like that. But that's not at all what's going on in the ancient world. It's basically that the jail is a set of walls and bars that keep you in and that's it. And then if you get to eat is dependent on family or friends or other people providing for you. That, that's an important part of the picture. I, I think, too, I'm glad you mentioned that they're in that long list from Matthew 25, that there are um, 
there are people or situations named that we probably have an easier time feeling charitable toward like, oh, a hungry person, sure, we should feed them, or the naked person, yes, we should clothe them. Those feel like morally neutral to us, but that Jesus doesn't stop there, but that then Jesus includes and says, I was a prisoner and you visited me. That suggests Jesus is identifying with somebody who's done something to end up in prison. Um, and we're, we're maybe not as inclined to go there, but I, I think it's it's noteworthy that Jesus makes that leap. Even even when Jesus identifies with the stranger, the the foreigner in that um, uh, passage too, there's sort of a moral nuance. There's lots of lots of folks who would hear the word "I was a foreigner" and immediately sees No, 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 Jesus, you can't be a foreigner. And here's Jesus identifying himself with, "Yep, I'm the foreigner," and on top of that, uh, I'm I'm there in the the person who's imprisoned. Um, and that the right thing to do, uh, the, the Jesus-like thing to do when you encounter someone who is in prison is to be present with them, to, to, to visit them, um, not to leave them to rot so that they'll learn their lesson. So the question for me, gang, um, you know, it, it's very clear, you know, Jesus is stating this. I mean, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. These are the things that you're supposed to do if you're to be counted as one of my sheep. Um why, with something that's so blatant and so clear, do we do we ignore this part of this passage? I guess and <laughs> I understand what you're saying, Steve. About you know the rest of them are are morally neutral. You know there is no necessarily um, somebody's hungry because they were bad kind of thing. Um, but you know, anytime I come across this passage, whether I'm leading a study on it or I'm preaching on it, whatever. That's the one that gets to me because it's something personally I've never done. I'll be quite honest. I've not gone to the prisons and visited people, but I've got a lay leader in my church who's 90 years old, who's been doing Bible studies in the prison for at least 10 years now. Um, you know, so she's doing great at this. And here I am as a pastor failing miserably because um, I, I, I don't have an excuse. Why? Well, and like maybe this is maybe this is a moment for us to say too that like <clears throat> I, I, this is this may be me putting my Lutheran hat on for a moment and saying like I, I would be wary about using this passage as a checklist of you don't get into heaven unless you've done one of each of these categories or something, um, but to, to say this is sort of like Jesus giving a sketch of. You, you want to find me in the world, here are the places to look for me instead of mm-hmm. looking for me on the throne or in the temple or things like that. Here, here are the places to come find me. Um, but um, I, I, you raise a really good point that for a lot of us, there's, there's, uh, there's no argument needed for why we should take care of providing food or being part of food banks or food ministries or why we should uh, you know, be charitable to folks who are hospitalized or sick, but it becomes harder to have that conversation with folks when it talks about uh, prison. And I think, I think honestly, part of that is there's a there's a deeper, like philosophical question that is unsettled, uh, or that maybe we've never even bothered to ask. And that's what what's the point of prison? And I think there are some folks whose a default assumption is <clears throat> something like. <clears throat> prison is there to be as miserable a time as possible to be retributive that like society gets its uh, gets repaid for the terrible thing you've done by making you suffer for a certain amount of time or maybe related to that is by making prison as as terrible as possible we will teach you the lesson that you should not be bad anymore and then there are others who would say prison doesn't 
that doesn't that doesn't really help, uh, and that 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 doesn't seem to actually change people. They are more likely to go and commit crimes again if they have only just sort of suffered through things. That we ought to see the correctional facilities uh, and that whole system as uh, trying to re- rehabilitate people so that they don't. Uh, commit crimes again or something like that. And, and there's probably shades of gray in between where there are folks who say, well, a little of this, a little of that. But I think that may be a part of it. There, there are sometimes we have this default assumption prison is supposed to be terrible because that's how you learn your lesson. Um, and others, may, maybe we don't have as good a, a time being clear about maybe that's not exactly what the point of prison should be. Or if that's what the state thinks the point of prison should be, that's not the way Christians are supposed to enter into the conversation. So, Steve, I completely agree with you that, you know, this is not a checklist of things. If you do them, then you get into heaven. If you miss one of them, then, you know, you don't get into heaven or you go to purgatory, whatever. Um, (laughs) None of us believe in that. Anyway, so we're good there. Um, (laughs) But I I know for like Wesley, um, this last section about, you know, visiting the prisoners was was huge for him. And and like we mentioned with biblical times, especially in, in the New Testament, um, you know, there was the, the idea of debtor's prison when people, um, you know, they'd get into so much debt, they couldn't pay it off. They would go to prison, which makes so much sense. Um, that was true of Wesley's time as well. Back in the 1700s, they still had debtor's prison. And his father often went to de- went to debtor's prison more than once because uh, Samuel didn't know how to handle money. When you mention... Uh... John Wesley being particularly uh, attentive to visiting or caring for the prisoner because in his own life that carried the face of his father. Like, I, I, I wonder if that's an important piece that we as Christians in particular uh, have to contribute to the conversation. And th- that's, that's the value of seeing everybody in the criminal justice system system as people with faces as as these these are actual lives and not statistics and it becomes really easy uh when you see somebody simply as a statistic or as that person or as you know those bad criminals Mm -hmm. not to care about what's their life story or oh do they have kids for crying out loud who are trying to you know uh put their lives back together while mom or dad is in prison or something like that and that when when the 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 like haunting beauty to me of Jesus parable that we call the sheep and the goats. When he says, you know, if you did it to the least of these, you did it to me is that Jesus locates his face in the face of the hungry, the poor, the the sick and the prisoner. And that, that, that to me is, is, is exactly what makes this not a, a checklist of do these things to earn your way into heaven, but instead here are places to look for the face of Christ to see these human beings as, as people who, as people. And that if Wesley didn't just think of, well, you know, people who ended up in debtor's prison, they must've been bad with money and it's their own fault. They should suffer. But, Oh, he pictures his dad. Mm-hmm. Um, then that, Oh, that then whoever is in prison for whatever reason, that that's somebody's kid. That's somebody's dad. That's somebody's mom. That's, that's a person. And, Oh, it does matter how they are treated, even if at the same time there are consequences for their actions. And and I, I guess to me that seems to me like maybe it puts some some guardrails on uh, how how followers of Jesus enter this conversation about criminal justice. Like that Jesus' response isn't um, "I was in prison and therefore you broke me out." I don't think it's our responsibility to bust people out of prison uh, because we don't think they should be in prison for robbing 
robbing a bank. There should be consequences for robbing a bank or burning down a building or whatever. Um, and at the same time that we advocate for people who are in prison to be treated with, with dignity. And so that, that there's a certain amount of humanity that, oh, wait a, wait a second, that this is this is a human being of infinite value uh, and, and always made in the image of God, even when we do stupid things or foolish things or selfish or even criminal or even violent things. Um, and if, if, if that's true, then um, our role might not necessarily be uh, that Christians are advocating to abolish all prisons in all circumstances, but instead that there is this guiding principle of prisoners as well are human and need to be treated as image of God. And I think that's where we fall short is we don't want to see criminals as having, uh, well, we don't want to see them as human. You know, we don't want to see them as having a background, having a backstory, having, um, not saying it, it's always a valid reason for why they do what they do, but to, to recognize that before they became a criminal, they were like you and me, you know, maybe, you know, we want to see ourselves as being better than them and, you know, through all our whole lives. And oh, we'd never, you know, get to the point where we're so desperate that we would rob a bank to try, you know, to, to get money to, who knows, feed our family or something like that. Um, is that the reason all bank robbers rob banks? No, probably not. But, um, you know, to, to see the humanity of prisoners is something I think that we have really, we don't want to do. For whatever yeah. reason, I don't want to say that we've lost that ability. I just think it's something we've not um, been encouraged to do. It's something that we've not been um, even maybe trained to do um, through our upbringing. There's criminals, you know, there's good guys and there's bad guys. There's criminals and there's people that aren't criminals and never shall the twain mix. And, and I think that does something, too, that affects those who, who work in uh, prisons or in the correctional system and like how does that affect the way you treat other people both in the prison and outside of prison if part mm -hmm. of that whole approach is when you're the the corrections officer you treat these people like they're you know they, they, you know, like like you just have to keep them behind bar like if, if you if they're if you're if you are taught for the sake of your work to sort of remove compassion or empathy man is it, it's not like a switch and then when you come home and now all of a sudden i'm i'm can turn the empathy switch back on. That's got to be really difficult for folks mm -hmm. who work, uh, on, who who work in the corrections system, who work in the prison system as well. And again, it suggests to me that that's maybe a place where where part of the problem is that if if we assume that there is this switch inside of us and we can turn it off uh, when we're around people who don't matter, and then it becomes really hard to turn it back on again. You said we can turn it off around people that don't matter, Steve, and and I want to comment on that because where in the gospels where in all the scripture does jesus god the holy spirit ever say people don't matter exactly exactly and that's the thing is we've taken folks and we said well this group of people doesn't matter but this group does and that to me that 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 gets back at the the conversation we've been wrestling around this whole time it seems that there i think there's an unspoken assumption for a, a lot of us that um 
if you are someone who's committed a crime that therefore means going to prison, um, you must be someone who's done something terrible and your humanity doesn't matter, for, at least for this period of time, because you did this bad thing. That's disqualifying. And again, because our underlying assumption then seems to be the point of prison is to be as painful as possible uh, with the thought that that's the only way you teach people things. That's the way you stop crime from happening is you punish people enough so that they never commit crimes again. And while I realize there's a difference between raising my grade school level kids and the complexities of the criminal justice system, it seems to me just an everyday observation is that just punishing my kids for something doesn't stop them from doing that thing again. They just find other cleverer ways to do it. It's, it's mm -hmm. not simply a matter of um, I made I made the punishment severe enough that you never did it again. They keep doing it. And part of what, what happens as they get older and as they grow is they learn other ways of dealing with circumstances. But it seems to me like just throwing a punishment at them or making it a longer sentence of timeout or a longer time that they can't use screens or TV or toys or whatever, that doesn't just fix it. It's not that we need to be yelled at more to make us good human beings. I mean, the death penalty in the states that still have it. I know a lot of states are getting rid of it now. And, and for that, personally, I'm grateful. But I mean, if that's not a deterrent to not kill somebody... Yeah. Then, then what else do you do? Like, I agree with you, Steve. You know, I don't think punishment and, and making somebody's life miserable is necessarily always the best way to go about keeping them from doing doing what they've done again. And, and to me, again, I think that that gets at like this this fundamental question that maybe collectively as a society we we we, ha we don't have clarity on is that there's sort of competing interests. There there are voices that say the primary point of criminal justice is that society needs to exact a penalty, like we need to punish people who do bad, like to satisfy some sort of like atonement theory. Almost, I mean, it's almost mm -hmm. like sort of there must be suffering to compensate for the injuries that have been caused. And then there are others who would say, no, the goal should be to minimize future crime from happening as much as possible. And that's why you remove people from society. And others would say, well, maybe it's more the point is to take people who were lawbreakers and to change them so they don't want to break the law anymore and to rehabilitate. And maybe it's some of the last two together, maybe, um, that people who are not yet ready to be in society need to be out of society so that they don't um, harm people or do things that are dangerous you know, while they're in that that uh, that uh, condition. Um, and I also don't want to assume that just, oh, a certain amount of take, taking enough classes in prison will instantly make you a charitable, loving person who never wants to harm anybody again. But I, I guess this is part of the complexity and that instead of just assuming prison is meant to make people suffer so that they feel so bad they never want to do something bad again, that that seems to me oversimplifying things. And mm -hmm. and that it, it, it it's trying to short circuit seeing those who are imprisoned as well as those who are victims as made in the image of God, as human beings with faces. And it seems like Jesus' call keeps coming back to put yourself in the position of the one who's in prison. What's that like? How would you want to be treated? And then that there's no exception for uh, those who are imprisoned. Oh, we don't have to care about those people, but nope, they belong as well. 
to me, this, this calls to mind one other passage from the New Testament that mentions being imprisoned, and it's along these same lines. There's, a, there's a, a passage late in the book we call Hebrews, where the author says something like, remember those who are imprisoned as though you yourselves were imprisoned with them, and those who are being tortured as though you were, you were being tortured with them as well. Um, and that, again, suggests that this is the Roman Empire that's doing the torturing and the, the imprisoning, um, and that, again, that suggests these are people who have done things that Rome considers a crime um, that is requiring torture, and that the author of Hebrews seems to be saying, put yourself in that position, and how, how, how would you want to be treated, and how would you want to be cared for in that position? It also seems to me it's not clear that Hebrews is only talking about Christians being put in prison because they're Christian. I mean, that, that may have been part of the situation, but I'm not sure the writer of Hebrews is only saying, uh, you know, other people who are being persecuted because of their faith, you should be compassionate for them. I think there's this sense of if you if someone is in prison, put yourself in the position of how, how do you want them to be treated if, if you were in that spot too. L- let, me, let me pose this question then. I mean, like, it seems like we're we're clear that that Jesus insists his followers are called to have a certain empathy and compassion for those who are imprisoned. Um, and that even the, the prison system um, that we live in right now provides more than, say, the ancient prison system in that, like, our prisons provide food and orange jumpsuits, um, whereas ancient prisons, it was just bars and walls. And yet at the same time, there's an awful lot that seems it just feels broken about our current system, and I guess I'm wondering what what are places that following Jesus might might suggest particular changes or at least trajectories for us. I think for me, it boils down to relationship. That it's easy to not care about prisoners if you don't know who they are. Mm-hmm. It's easy to just say, "Oh yes." It's so like the number of people, it's this group of people. I'm not part of this group. I'm not counted in this number. Um, It's easy to not care when you don't have a relationship, when you can't put a face to names or names to faces. Um, And and I and I kind of think that Jesus gets that, that Jesus gets that it's easy to ignore this group of people who need help when you don't know them. And so Jesus is kind of stepping forward and saying, you do know them. They're your brothers and your sisters. They're me. When, you know, you can picture my face, you can picture my name because I am one of their number. And it's, it's kind of a, it's a nice way to start expanding your comfort zone when you think of it that way. Um, Mother Teresa says, um, she she really liked the Matthew 25 passage. Like it was one of her scriptures that she held up as why she did the things that she did in India of um, like caring for the poor because she would hold up this passage and she would say that, um, you know, when she served the poor, when she fed the hungry, she saw the face of Jesus. And I think that's kind of what we can do in order to start feeling more comfortable being around the imprisoned by being in a relationship with the imprisoned because suddenly it's, it's people, it's a person staring back at you and it's Jesus. So it sounds like that suggests like 
a place for advocacy for Christians should be like humane conditions or um, humane regard for how the imprisoned are treated uh, is like bare minimum. Um, and maybe that there are places for conversation about what things do we want to make sure are offered to those who are imprisoned um, so that they can have good advocacy, you know, when it comes for appeals or things like that before. I mean, there, there are some things that are like based, like, yeah, if, if we, if we follow that train of thought, we would want to support that prisoners should have access to, you know, legal libraries or they should have, you know, humane treatment and there should not be tolerance of abuse or violence or things like that, uh, against, against, uh, prisoners. Um, what, what, what else do you hear? What, what else, what else do you see that looking like? I think advocacy um, in the fact of, of trying to keep people out of prison. Um, I, I've been doing some reading as of late. Uh, I started a book a while ago uh, and never did finish it about um, the prison sy- system and our African-American brothers and sisters and how it tends to be, um, you know, disenfavored towards them, um, how, you know, blacks go to prison at a higher rate than whites for some of the same crimes. And um, I know there's a lot of debate about that. This is not the place I want to have that debate, but, um, you know, making sure that folks have the resources that they need, um, not just when they are in prison, but to try to keep them out of prison. Yeah, I think, you, you, you've helpfully raised, and like you say, that this is gonna this this becomes a more complicated conversation than we can have in just the tail end of one episode of a podcast. But maybe spoiler alert, teaser alert, we should have a conversation about what race and justice look like for us as well. Hey, that's an idea. Um, but that that also points to like where are there discrepancies and things like sentencing, like for comparable crimes. What happens when? You get one, whether it's demographic group, racial group, ethnic group, or um, whatever, that that is consistently getting different kind of sentences for comparable kind of crimes, and how much of that is up to the prejudice or assumption of a jury or a judge about who is a more dangerous criminal. You know, that if you have the the bald facts side by side and they're comparable and one just person decides, oh, that person looks like they're shadier, they're more likely to, you know, do more crime again. Uh, they should serve more time. You end up with this sort of vicious cycle with this people who are then sort of, it, it feels like the system is stacked against them and there's no reason yeah. for them to want to try and make a go of things. Uh, when they get out, because it looks like the world is conspiring against them to to have any kind of uh, legitimate success in life. So that I mean that that certainly seems to be a piece of the conversation. Yeah, I think we should definitely talk about that more. Maybe. Hey, maybe that should be what we talk about next. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so maybe are we at a point where we should say um, we we've opened cans of worms about criminal justice? Uh, and bottom line, it sounds like the. The seeing the face of Christ in in not only victims but in the the accused and the imprisoned is is maybe our starting point, and that that should be uh, how we approach conversation about criminal justice as Christians. Yes, I agree with that. Sounds like a good starting All right. point. All right, yeah. <laughs> well, um, then, then let's stick a pin in it and uh, pick up with conversation per per our our um, uh, discussion here. That maybe next time we need to talk about what what race in America. 
uh, and justice looks like uh, next time around. So uh, thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next time here on Crazy Faith Talk. See you. Bye. Bye.